I've uh, crafted this message and I've called it Easter. Dot, 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 dot. Why all the fuss? Why all the fuss? Touch the person behind you and go, why all the fuss? <sighs> I like the way everyone's voice went up an octave or three there. Why all the fuss? Simple answer is because it's about you. There's a lot of fuss around this message because it's about you. And my hope today is that I can instill in you a thankfulness that will propel you forward. Here's the great thing. We've, we've wrestled a lot in the last couple of years with mental health in particular, haven't we? I know there's students here who are studying to be nurses um, in mental health. It's a big deal. But when you look at God's principles in his word, they're helpful for mental health. We know, don't we, that thankfulness is good for your mental health. And here we are called to live thankful. It is a proven fact that going out in the countryside is good for your mental health. Who created the countryside? It is proven fact that being by water, particularly the sea, is good for your mental health. Who created it? You know, our creator put everything in our way for us to be healthy. But somewhere on the line, we've got off track. And so I feel like God said to me, Barry, I don't want you to do what you usually do, which is bring a Bible-based inspirational message to equip you for life, to go and be God's people out there. He said, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is remind us. He will remind you. And I just want to go back to the garden and take us on a journey, bringing us to this point of resurrection and remind us. Not that you don't know it, but sometimes when you hear it again, something stirs in you. And I want to believe that thankfulness will stir in you to the point where you make a new decision. Amen? Let's go there then. Let's go, let's go in the garden. I love, you know, I'm not great on science. Uh, we've got Io, who's a science teacher, so I have to be so careful. We've got doctors and nurses in this church, so if ever I touch on the human body, I'm like, I hope I'll get this right. First sentence in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's amazing because right there in sentence number one, it sets out the paradigm that we live in. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. And we live in the paradigm of time, space, and matter. Am I okay so far? I, I thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So happy, so happy. But here's the thing. I believe the biggest faith question we have to ask is this. Who created God? It's tough, yeah? I think if you can settle that one, everything else is a breeze. Yeah. Everything else is literally a breeze. But here's the thing. We live in this paradigm, time, space, and matter. Did you say, in the beginning, God created it. So God isn't in it. He's outside it. God created it. So when we try to think who created God, we are instantly thinking within the paradigm he created us to live in. But he doesn't live in it. He lives outside of it. So it's not a question of who created God. God is and then he created us. And our small two-part brain, especially my one-part brain, can't get outside of those things. So, I, so that's faith for me. I don't understand it all. But I look around at brilliant people. You think about your eyes and how they function, your heart, how we reproduce, how we heal ourselves. It cannot just be an accident. There has to be, and science is now saying intelligent design. Yeah, I think that's the agreed term in the science world. Well, I want to say that intelligence is my God. And he lives outside the paradigm we live in because he created it. Am I doing okay, Ayo? Thank you, sir. I feel so much better. 
Praise the Lord for affirmation. But then we find ourselves in the garden. And he put, God put man in the garden. He created us on the sixth day. He says the best till last. You need to know you're God's favorite. You are God's favorite. I don't know if you've ever been anyone else's favorite. But I know this, you're God's favorite. He created us last. And it says he created us in his image. We have the ability to take on the character of God. To think, to speak, to be creative. He loves us. More importantly, he loves you. He created you in his image. But then we have this relationship and he wants this relationship with us. And it's a love relationship. And it starts here in Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. It says this, and the Lord God commanded the man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We all know that passage, don't we? My understanding is the Garden of Eden was about the size of the UK. So you've got the size of the UK and God's only requirement is don't eat from one tree. One tree. One. Whole of the UK, one tree. We know how it goes, don't we? But here's the great thing. There's two things in this statement I want us to grab right now. Firstly, God gives humanity a choice. That's the tree I don't want you to eat from. And if you don't eat from it, what you're saying is you honor my kingship. You love me. Because who knows love has to be a free will choice. You know, can you imagine my awesome wife, Sarah, and I get up in the morning and say, Sarah, you must love me. You've got to love me, and that is the rule. You love me. All the men in the room are like, amen. Can you imagine that relationship? You must love me. You don't have a choice. You've got to love me. Is that love? Would that ever work? It wouldn't work with my wife. I know that. But she does love me. Amen? Amen. But the reason she loves me is because she's seen my character. The reason she loves me is because I'm hot. No, the reason she loves me. Amen. Amen. The reason she loves me is because she sees something in me that is attractive. And I, don't, I can't force that. I can just be who I am. And here is God right at the beginning of time saying, I'm going to give you a choice. And it's a free will choice because I want a love relationship with you. I'm not going to force it. But the way I know you'll love me is by honoring me with that one tree. Just one. Simple request. And man can look at God and think, wow, God's awesome. Imagine literally walking in the garden with God, face to face, hand to hand, doing life with God. I want to tell you this. There was no sickness. There was no tears. There was no jealousy. There was just love. What an awesome place to be. But it's interesting that, that, that he, he says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because what that says is, when you know what's right and wrong, you become the judge. Do you see? When I know what's good and when I know what's evil, I decide. But God knows what's good and evil, and we trust his judgment. It's not for me to know everything, I trust his judgment. Can you see? So firstly, we're declaring this free will love relationship, and secondly, we're honoring you're the judge, I'm not the judge. Yeah? But then there's this backstory. We know that Lucifer is in heaven. And, and he challenges God. He rises up in pride. Why should I worship you? 
And God throws him out of heaven. So Lucifer, we change his name to Satan, which means adversary, becomes the adversary of man. Why man? Because we're his favorites. Okay, God, you kick me out of heaven. I'm going to spoil this thing. These people you desperately want to love. These people you've given free choice. And he comes in. And Satan's got one good weapon. It's a whisper. It's a whisper. And he says this. Genesis 3, verse 5. This is Satan speaking. For God knows that when you eat, eat from it, the tree, your eyes will be opened. Look at this. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Can you see? So suddenly it's speaking into the pride of man. I could be like God. How many people do you know who think they're God? <laughs> Walking around, oh, I'm, I'm going to be like God. But the key is this. You will know what's right and wrong. You become the judge. Can you see it? Now suddenly there's this issue in the relationship between a perfect God and now a man who's chosen to do the very thing he wasn't supposed to do. One tree. One. And it showed us we loved him. And it broke God's heart. And you see, a perfect God cannot relate to sin. And sin is missing the mark. And when we ate from the tree, we missed the mark. It's not the worst thing in the history of the planet. It kind of is, actually, I suppose. <laughs> but we missed the mark. And God says, okay, I still love you, but you can't be in my presence because of sin. And there's this horrible, horrible issue. The thing is, God said to him, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Do you know the very next thing that happens? Cain kills Abel. Do you know why he killed him? Because he was jealous. Why would he be jealous? Because he's decided what he thinks is right. Can you see it straight away? We're the judge now. Hang on a minute, you've brought this sacrifice to God and I don't agree with that. That's terrible. In fact, no, I'm not having that. And he kills him. Literally in generation number one, there is murder and there is jealousy straight away. Just as God said. Because we wanted to be like God. Instead of submitting, you are God, I am not. Can you see it? This is right at the beginning. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with biblical stuff, the number seven is the number of completeness or, per, or perfection. God created the world in seven days. Six days on the seventh day, he rested. So it's this number of completion. If you follow from Cain, seven generations, so a complete cycle, you end up at this man called Lamech. When I say Lamech, you have to boo like a pantomime. <laughs> seven generations. The perfect number of cycles from Cain is Lamech. Oh, this side was quite good. This side was a bit rubbish. There was Lamech. Yeah, better, 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 better. This is, have a look at this. Genesis chapter 4. Seven generations. Lamech said to his... Oh, just, <laughs> Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, Listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Can you see it? It's gone seven cycles, this, this separation from God, this idea that I am judge and God is, and I know what's right and I know what's wrong. Seven generations, what happens? Firstly, he's got more than one wife. What's going on there? See, man thinks that's a good idea. I'm not sure the girls do. But man says, well, I'll have more than one wife. Lust of the eyes, greed. It's creeping in. And then this guy, he said, he wounded me, so I killed him. That is horrendous. And now he's celebrating it. 
You read around his story, it says Cain killed one, but Lamech kills many. He's celebrating it. And it's this idea that now I know what's right and wrong, I can lead how I want to lead. The thing is, without God, man in his own wisdom, his own opinion, leads himself to unhappiness. In the end, you've wounded me, I'm going to kill you. Do you think that satisfies him? I've got two wives, do you think that satisfies him? There always has to be something more with the human desire, doesn't it? And this has led to sickness, it's led to disease, it's led to death, it's led to wars, it's led to people being mistreated. Why? Because we stepped out of the presence of God. But isn't it funny, I find it funny, stroke sad, as a Christian man, how man chooses to remove God and then blame God for all the issues. Yeah. Why is there sickness, Pastor Barry? Why did my mum die, Pastor Barry? Why did this happen, Pastor Barry? I'll tell you why. Because we stepped away from God. We took God out of the equation because we think we know best. But when we're in the garden with God, no sickness, no death, no tears, just potential to explore, potential to thrive. Can you see it? Going on this seven-generation idea, um, Adam and Eve have another son called Seth. And if you follow seven generations from Seth, you find this guy called Enoch. Turn to the person next to you and say, Enoch. When I say Enoch, you can cheer. Enoch. Let's not do that again. I'm not going to read to you about Enoch. I challenge you to go and find him. But here's the truth. Enoch gets removed from the earth without dying. How cool is that? So Lamech, seven generations without God, killing multiple wives, jealousy, revenge. Enoch, seven generations with God, doesn't die at all. There's life. That's a message all by itself, isn't it? With God, there's life. Without God, there's death. That kind of sums it all up. I want God in my life because I want to live and I want to live to the full. And Jesus said, I would come so you would have the fullest life. That's for you. That's for you. I sometimes think to myself, Adam, <laughs> what an egg. If you hadn't done that, but I, but I think that's me and my own humanity. Do we think we'd have done it differently? It's so easy from the distance to say, I wouldn't have done that. It's like when you see, a, you see someone rescue someone, there's a big explosion. You think you'd be the person running in there to grab them out of the fire. We all think we're the hero, but probably we'd be going, um... Someone? Because we always think we're the hero, and we always think we wouldn't do what Adam didn't do, did do. Have you ever seen that picture of the devil, and it's like a little red imp with a pitchfork? Have <laughs> you all seen that one? And it's just like, it's almost so obvious that's the devil. But let me show you a biblical description of the devil. Have you ever heard this one? Ezekiel chapter 28. This is what the Bible says about him. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 17. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of, king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Can you see it's him? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, an emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, Lapis, whatever that is, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. 
For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before kings. Lucifer was the most beautiful angel. He had stones all over his body. I believe he was charged with leading worship. Because what happens is the glory of the Lord comes in this bright light. And then in comes Lucifer, this beautiful guardian angel covered in stones. And the stones reflect back the glory of God to him in different ways. He was just like, wow. He was a worship leader. But sin was found in him. And God said, I can't do that. Not in my presence. And he threw him down. And here we have this battle, Satan and humanity. Here's the great thing. One of the reasons Satan hates me and you on a Sunday morning like this because when we get up with our epic worship team and we raise our hands and praise Jesus, we are doing the thing that used to be his job. And he hates us for it. So I say back to the men again, every time you get your praise on, you are stamping the devil down because it used to be his job and now it's your job and he hates you for it. Not excluding women, but women are better at it anyway. All the women say, always. Here's the thing, he's beautiful. And he doesn't come in like this little imp in a pitchfork, obvious. He comes in knowing you. And he shows you what is beautiful to you in your flesh. And suddenly we find ourselves with lustful thoughts. Of course, she's nice. He's nice. Ooh, I'll go for them. And say, where did that come from? It's this beauty. What we find beautiful, suddenly we find ourselves greedy. I could have a little bit more. If I could have some more money, I'll get some more money. I could have another car. If, if I could do this more. And we make it about ourselves and, it, and it's feeding our flesh. Where does that come from? Because we see it as beautiful to us in our flesh. And it's being tempted by the one who is beautiful in the presence of God. And it's not this so obvious thing. It's like these little temptations that come in. He's clever. It's that whisper. You can go and take that. It'll be okay. You can have a gossip about that person because they'll probably never find out and you don't really like them. It'll make you feel good. It's just this whisper and we go on this journey and it escalates. Where does it lead to? Hurt. Ultimately death. And who's doing it? This Satan. Who's not the imp, but the most beautiful angel who whispers in your ear the things that you find beautiful which just get you off of God. Just get you off of God. Here's another one. What about wallowing in self-pity? You know, I was with Pastor Bruce Monk over the past couple of days, and he really challenges leaders. And he was saying the church has to mature. And he told this story of his little dog. He's got this little fluffy dog, and he walks this little dog. And he, he took it out for a walk one day, and he turned around. He wasn't there, the dog. And he thought, oh, no, his wife Helen's going to be mad with me now. So he walks back, and uh, his dog was sat there. And he'd done a poop. And he wouldn't get up because he's a posh dog and he knew he had a dirty bottom. <laughs> so he didn't want to walk along with his dirty bottom. 
And I thought, where are you going with this, Bruce? And then he said this, how many Christians aren't moving because they're sitting in their own poop? And it's just like, come on. We're wallowing in it. Oh, you don't, Pastor Barry, you don't know how bad it is for me. You, you just don't know. And I'm, oh, I'm so desperate. And I'm so desperate. Where's that coming from? That little whisper. Oh, God doesn't really love you. The church doesn't really love you. They don't care about you. Your family doesn't love you. And it's just becoming all fleshy and all about me when Jesus says, get your eyes on the King of Kings. He's the lifter of your head. He's the one who has a plan for you. He'll take you through the valley and there's a, there's a table prepared for you. Come on, there's always hope in Christ. And here we are wallowing in our self-pity and come on, we've got to grow up. is he makes you think you're a judge it's wrong I don't agree with it well how about God's judge I'm not my goal is to submit to his kingship and be humble and then he comes through like a rushing wind that turbo we've prayed about suddenly propels my life forward it's funny how you don't worry about the poop in your life when you're heading over there anyway leave it behind you and go church come on touch three people and say it's time to go but here comes the heart of the father he says, enough already. I made my incarnate. They're still my favorites. We're still his favorites. Despite it all, we're still his favorites. He says, I'm going to reach out to them. And he reaches out to the nation Israel. You need to know Israel is about the size of Wales. He reaches out to this tiny little nation to demonstrate his massive love to a big world. You know, all the odds are stacked against Israel, but who knows Israel never lose. Why? Because God's gone. Little tiny nation, all these massive nations around them that bomb them and throw stuff at them and accuse them. Israel always comes out trumps. Why? Because God says, I want to demonstrate something through them. He's going to demonstrate something through you. We find verses like this in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 22. So you will be my people and I will be your God. So good. It's just how he chooses these, this amazing bunch of people. And then they go on this journey and we find the Ten Commandments. I sometimes feel like we look at the Ten Commandments of a list of rules. Yeah, do you look at it like that? Well, I want to suggest to you it's not a list of rules. It's actually a marriage covenant. And this is how we're going to live together. This is how it will work. In some cultures, they still do that. The two families sit together and they agree this is what it needs to look like. Not in our culture we don't do that, but, but the others do. And God is saying, you, know, you follow these things, it's going to work between me and you. And you look at the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't disagree with any of them. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't cover another man's stuff. Have a rest. They're brilliant. It's like, oh, God's a bunch of rules. No, it's not. It's, this is how it's going to work best. If you do that, you're going to succeed. It's simple. He loves us. He loves you. But guess what? Man couldn't even do that. Messed up again, continually. And God said, I'm not getting out of relationship with you anymore. So he instigated this thing called the scapegoat. Anyone familiar with the scapegoat? He says, I want you to take two goats. I want you to sacrifice one because I see the blood. I see the blood and it's for, for, for forgiveness and redemption. And then I want with the other one, I want you to speak over it and put the sins of the nation, the sins of your people on the goat and send it away. And it goes away. And the Bible says your sin is as far as the east is from the west. And we look at that static, but actually your sin is going west, east. And you are going west, east. But you'll never meet again. And that's how God sees it. We sometimes look at ourselves and our sin and our poor mistakes, and we're holding it and holding it and holding it. But actually, it's going that way, and you're going this way. And you're getting further and further apart, and God loves you. 
But there's this idea of this scapegoat. Have any of you felt like you've been made the scapegoat before? Because you understand what it means. The scapegoat is something that's done nothing wrong but gets blamed for it. You know, when I used to play football, sorry, a football story. When I used to play football, um, you know, occasionally we might lose a game. And I remember this one particular game, I think we'd lost three goals to one, and uh, our defence had been rubbish. We had these two really big guys playing in the, in the defence, and normally they'd win their headers and make great tackles, and they just were falling over and making poor passes, and we let goals in. And um, I went down the wing this time, and I, and I, and I was played on the wing, and I, and I crossed this ball in, and it went behind the goal, and it wasn't a great cross. Hold my hands up. And... Um, um, <laughs> And we came off having lost 3-1. And the manager sat me down in front of the whole team and said, Barry, what was that cross all about? What on earth? He blamed the whole thing on me. And I'm like, are you literally joking me? What about that muppet who kept falling over all game? But I was made the scapegoat. And it didn't feel good. It wasn't fair. I'm sure you'll have your own story. The reality is the scapegoat isn't fair. The goat has done nothing wrong, but he says, this is a symbol to you. You put the sins on the goat and you send it away and it never comes back. Then comes Jesus, my Jesus, your Jesus. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. He didn't send him into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I love verse 17. You see, I think some people who don't know Jesus think he's here to wag a finger at you and condemn you, but he's not. He's here to save you. And saving is an ongoing process. It's not a one-time thing. There is a moment of salvation when you say, Jesus, you are welcome here. That is the moment of salvation. But then you go on a journey where he continually saves you from your stuff. You get freer and freer and freer. And I just want to be a little bit more like Jesus. Now, this time next week, I hope I'm a bit more free than I am today because I'll be a bit more like Jesus. I'm continually being saved. You are continually being saved because Jesus loves you. And he came and he said, I'm going to demonstrate what my father looks like. And what did he do? He forgave people. He healed people. He provided for people. He accepted people. He hugged the unlovable. He included the women and the children who at the time weren't included. Jesus was awesome. And he said, this is what my dad looks like. But man in his wickedness couldn't handle it. So they crucified him. And we remember that on Friday. They crucified him. He couldn't deal with it. And Satan thinks he's won. Got him. Satan thinks he's won. But my God had another plan. You see, this is the faith of Jesus. He said, I am fully God, but I am fully man. And I lay my body down before you. And I trust you, my father, to raise me. And he goes to the cross. And even with all the accusations in that horrible moment on the cross where they're, they're saying, well, you, you're the king of the Jews. You saved everyone else. Why can't you save yourself? Who are you? They're spitting at him. There's this horrible moment, and it's misconstrued where they offer him this wine vinegar on a pole. Have you read it? And it's just like, why would they offer him wine vinegar on a pole? And my understanding is this, because the thing they offered it on, to him on was the thing they used to wipe their backsides with. You want to drink Jesus? Have it off of that. That was what my Jesus was going through. And do you know what he said? Father, forgive them. Just wow. That's my Jesus. In the midst of my horrendousness, in the midst of everyone else's horrendousness, Jesus isn't condemning. He's saying, Father, forgive them. I love them. I'm here for these people. And they crucified him. 
And the great thing is this, Jesus becomes our once and for all scapegoat because he bled. And the father says, I recognize the blood. I recognize the blood. But then there's that horrible moment where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you know why? Because all the sins of the world were placed on him, the scapegoat. And even his dad couldn't look at it. He had to turn around. And there was that moment where even his dad couldn't look at him. Everything I've done, thought and said wrong was placed on Jesus. Everything you've done, thought and said wrong was placed on Jesus. Not from just history, but from the future too. And he carried it. And he died. And he didn't deserve it. He did nothing wrong. He was the scapegoat. But it doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't end there. Read this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the thing. Satan thought he'd won. Satan thought it was all over. But Jesus was righteous. He was the sinless man. He had done nothing wrong. And so he went to the pit. But who knows, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. When Jesus denied his body in that moment, he gave every person on the planet another choice. Do you remember the choice in the garden? Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from that tree, but don't eat from that tree. And if you don't eat from that tree, you are showing me you love me. That's your free will choice. Jesus says, I'm forgiving you now. Now you get a choice. You can embrace me or you can not embrace me. I'm never going to force it. It's absolutely your choice. But when you embrace me, we're going on a journey of life. And if you don't embrace me, I'll still love you. But it's not going to lead to a great place. Every person on the planet still has this awesome, awesome choice. He says, my sacrifice is enough. My blood is enough. I am the scapegoat. Your sins are on me now. And when the Father looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Jesus. I love that. This is, I call it the blood of Jesus goggles. You know, God puts on the blood of Jesus goggles and looks down at Equipus Church Essex and says, look at all them. Perfect, 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 perfect. Not because you're perfect, because he was perfect and he's covered you. And so we've got to stop beating ourselves up for the things we do wrong. Not to sit in them and go, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. I want to honor God with my life. But when I do get it wrong, I'm not beating myself up because the blood of Jesus covers me. And when the Father looks at me, I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. Because Jesus is enough. He looks at you through the filter of Jesus' blood. But it doesn't finish there. On the Sunday, he gets up. Acts 2 verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing, from, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death couldn't hold him. Do you know the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus had no sin. So death had no hold on him. It couldn't hold him. He had to get back up. He had to get back up. It couldn't hold him. And here's the great thing. Me and you have sinned. But Jesus says, I've taken that sin. I've won the victory on your behalf. So death can't hold you either. Sickness can't have you either. Debt can't have you either. All your issues in your life can't have you either. They're chains to you. But he broke them. He says, let's run free. The victory of today is actually about you. Living an amazing life that says, Jesus is king. I'm going to prove it to you by the way I live. Not that I'm better than you. Or you're better than me. 
but I've got a king who's better than everyone. And he lives in here because I've said, I made my choice, Jesus. You are welcome. I don't get it right every time, but I'll do my best. And when I don't get it right, I'm forgiven. My sin is going that way and Barry's going this way. That is our reality. Can you picture it like this? Here's the great thing. When we invite Jesus into our hearts, it's like he's come back out of the grave and said, I've got the keys to life. Let's go live it. Let's go on an adventure. You see, all the things I intended for you in the garden are a reality again. You know, things that used to have you can't have you. Today is a new day. You can grab it, but it's your choice. The offer is there. It's your choice. We celebrate him getting up today, but I celebrate him getting up every day. I wake up in the morning and go, today's a new day for me. The past doesn't hold me anymore. My past doesn't dictate my future. My God dictates my future. And I submit to him and I'm going to live like it. I wonder if there's anyone in the church today that says, I'm going to live like that. I'm going to live in such a way that Jesus is glorified. But that's a choice. He's dealt with your sin once and for all. And here's the thing. The devil wants you in debt. The devil wants you in struggle. The devil wants you in poor health. The devil wants you dissatisfied. But full life is found in Christ. And there's nothing he can do about it except for whisper in your ear. You might go away today and go, that was a good message and I really enjoyed church today, but oh, I'm not sure. And that's cool, that's your choice. But if you will choose in your heart to allow Jesus in, I'm telling you the truth, you will live life. And you will have a hope in your heart you will never find anywhere else. And I'm believing for a church to rise up with a faith that says, my God's got me. I'm going to live like it. I'm going to dream again. I'm going to push doors. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to embrace people who are struggling because Jesus is going to use my life to demonstrate his glory. You get to choose that. How exciting. Here's our challenge. We have the choice to live a life that reflects that truth daily. But can we choose never to get blasé about it? There will be people sitting here today, listening online, who have heard a message like that a hundred times. But the truth is as real today as it was the first time you heard it. Could we be a bunch of people who says, yes, that means something to me, so I'm going to live like it. That means something to me, so I'm going to shift my life. The moment we start to put things before God, God will still love you. He'll still forgive you. But we lose our vavavoon. Do you know what I mean? It's just like God loves me. But do you know what? I'm not sure I'll make church today. Got to see the family. The moment we do that, we're putting something else first. You know, I'll go to work tomorrow and someone's struggling and I could quite easily go and put my arm around them and say, you okay? Or I could think, oh, you know, it's a bit of hassle over there, I've got some work to do. So, oh, missing these moments where we could represent God well. And God is saying, will you put me first? Because my son went to a cross he didn't deserve to put you first. And my response is, thank you. I'm going to put you first. And in putting him first, the word says it like this, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will come your way anyway. We chase after these things and we labor and we toil and sometimes we don't get there and end up unhappy. Or we can say, Jesus, you're number one and we can breathe, we can enjoy and we just end up in a better place. That's the love of the Father to you. I hope I can stir some thankfulness in you today. 
thankful that Jesus went to a cross for me, but thankful that he went to a cross that wasn't the end. Because he's not on the cross anymore. It bothers me slightly that we sit in a room with Jesus on a cross. Because Jesus is not on a cross. Jesus is sat at the right hand of the Father, where all authority is his. And he lives in my heart through his spirit. And I want to live like that. I want to live like that. I want to live thankful every day that I know my eternal destiny is heaven. Not because I'm great, because he's great. I know he's working things in my life behind the scenes for my good. Because he says so and he loves me. So I want to live to honor that. And that means being thankful. That means making life choices that deny my wants to sow into his wants. Because he's the judge and I'm not. And I've decided that. So I don't know where you sit today. But I want to offer you an opportunity today to make a new decision. So I'm getting real about this. I want to choose to live for Christ. I want to choose again to put him first. I want to honor that he's the judge. He knows right and wrong. I'm just little old me. I submit to his kingship. And as we do that, I believe a passionate church is going to rise up with thankful hearts that will go out and love some people and show some people who desperately need Jesus in their life what Jesus looks like. Amen. I'd love you to stand because I want to pray for you. Let me again just invite you just to close your eyes. Let's take a moment. Father, I want to thank you for your presence here. I want to thank you that you've made a choice. You've made a choice to love and accept every person in this room, every person listening online. You've made that choice. You demonstrated that choice in sending your son, your love letter from heaven that says, you're awesome. I see your struggles, but I'm pulling you out of those struggles. I see your hurts, and I'm healing you. But would you choose me today? Yes, you. The Father saying you, would you choose me today? So we can go on this love journey where I've chosen you and you've chosen me. And it will lead to life. It will lead to adventure. It will lead to joy. It will lead to health. It will lead to satisfaction. But it's your choice. Just with every eye closed, is there anyone here today who isn't right with Jesus? Maybe you've never said, Jesus, I choose you. Or maybe once you said, Jesus, I choose you, but you know, really, you've let it go. You've drifted. Is today the day you say, Jesus, I want you in the middle of my life. You are welcome to live in my heart. I want to respond in a choice of love to allow you in. Just with every eye closed, if, if you're there, if you want to choose Jesus today, would you just raise your hand because I want to pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Thank you, Jesus.
Jesus. That's good. Always going to give that option. And here's where I hope I get a big response. Are you someone in church today who says, Jesus, I want to go deeper with you. I've chosen you. But I choose you afresh. I challenge myself to get past my humanity and what I think is right and wrong and choose to step into your kingship and submit to what is actually right and wrong. I offer my life to you, Jesus, in the way you offered your life for me and say, use me, send me, do what you need to do in me. Help me to be a bit more like you. Is that the kind of prayer you want to pray this morning? And again, with every eye closed, if that's you, just raise your hands and we're going to pray together. God bless you, God bless you. Oh, wow, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. God bless you, so many people, so good. Come on, who's getting, who's getting real with Jesus today? Who wants to take another step forward with Jesus today? Who wants to make a fresh decision in our heart today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray a prayer like this. I'll pray, and then all of us pray together. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you've chosen me. Today, I choose you. I want to thank you. Death couldn't hold Jesus. And it now has no hold on me. Because Jesus, you are welcome in my heart. Help me to be more like you. And to bring heaven to earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Should we give Father a great big round of applause for all he's doing?